Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. joining us for the first time since COVID really kicked in for the most part. So I just want to remind everybody, uh, well, first of all, say glad you're here, and then remind everybody else that uh, while we have, you know, not required masks and been mask Nazis, if you see someone wearing a mask and you'd like to talk to them, please put yours on before approaching them or getting within that, you know, 15 to 20 feet or so of them, okay? Remember, this isn't about... uh, fear or rules or anything else. It's about loving one another and honoring each other's needs medically and physically and spiritually as we, uh, we, we strive and long to connect. So uh, so good, though, for everybody here. A couple of quick announcements before we get into the message. Uh, first and foremost, baptism. Baptism is one of those amazing things that is part of our walk with Christ. It's part of discipleship. And so uh, we're going to be doing baptisms on both Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So if you would like to be baptized, and you might wonder, well, why would I need to be baptized? Well, there's a couple of reasons why you would want to be baptized. Number one, you have made an initial profession of faith. You've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time, and you've never been baptized as that first act of obedience, publicly professing Him, then, then we would encourage you to choose baptism. And if you need more information, just let me know. I'll, I'll talk with you. We'll, we'll talk about it and uh, confirm that you've chosen Christ as Lord and Savior and then prepare you for baptism. And, uh, and then there's maybe a second class of folk in here who would consider baptism. Maybe you were baptized as an infant or you were baptized as a small child. So whether that was something you didn't have any control over or you were really young when you made that initial profession of faith and and were baptized and and you've come to new understandings and you'd like to to really refresh your faith, maybe you would consider being baptized again as a new mile marker or a new new, uh, kind of remembrance time for you. Or maybe you have wandered for a while. Maybe you've uh, walked away from God. You've spent some time doing things your own way, and you've come to a point of repentance and renewal in your spiritual walk, and you would consider baptism as another, once again, mile marker, a milepost, a a memorial for a change in your life that you can look back to. So while you only need to ever be baptized once, you know, when it comes down to the rules, uh, baptism can also be for those of us who've maybe wandered and are coming back to Christ, and uh, not because our salvation was lost and we got resaved, but rather we were backslidden and wandering a little bit and it's time to refresh and repent and renew, then baptism could be a memorial for you, a, a special time. So if you're in either of those camps, first-time believer or a renewing or a reestablished believer, we would encourage you to consider baptism either Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday. And if you're afraid of water, it's okay. We will not hold you under, I promise. Um, you know, and the water will be moderately warm and no one will laugh when you come up and your hair looks terrible. So, um, 
just, just like so many good reasons to be baptized and uh, to pursue that, that act of obedience, whether it's the first time or a renewal in your life. So we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to Mark chapter 10 as we begin to, to look again at the teachings of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. That he is the one true king of all creation, promised to us from Genesis chapter 3, and unfolded through the whole Old Testament, that by the time we get to the time of Jesus, we can see his miracles, his teaching, his works, and know that he truly is this promised redeemer of all mankind and creation. And it's also revealed to us that he is the one and only, unique, only begotten son of God. And Jesus came to the earth in Mark 1.15. We learned way, way long ago that Jesus' message for all of us as he walked this earth was, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus' message was not one of politics. Jesus' message was not one of make your life better with these three easy steps. But instead, Jesus' message from the very beginning of his ministry was always, the kingdom of God is here, it's right here waiting for you, and you need to believe in me and believe on that transition that God is bringing to pass after having turned away from your ways of rebellion. And so this has always been Jesus' message. And it continued to be his message throughout his ministry. So when we get to Mark chapter 10, looking at verses 13 through 31, we're going to see Jesus kind of expand on this idea of the kingdom of God. And a lot of folks might wonder, well, how do I get to the kingdom of God? And once I'm at the gate, how do I get in? And of course, as, as Christians, we've got some pretty simple answers of, you know, we'll believe on Jesus and his his death, burial, and resurrection, and you can be saved and you become part of the kingdom of God, a citizen. And, and that is true, but Jesus also helps us to understand that it's, once again, not just some sort of sit back and believe it's true, but there is a condition into which we must enter, a, a way of life that we have to experience as we believe on Jesus Christ in order for this entry into the kingdom of God to take effect in our lives. And so here we are, Mark chapter 10. First, we're going to start with verses 13 through 16. So if you'll read with me in your Bibles or in your Bible app or however you've got God's word today, let's look at what Jesus has to say. So Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter in. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus has been teaching, he's been preaching. Last week he taught us about the importance of, of marriage covenant and, and how lifelong it is supposed to be. And, and so as Jesus is, is there and he's teaching, people start to bring to him their small children so that he might bless them. Luke actually uses um, the word in the Greek that's more like babies. 
So Jesus is doing like baby, baby dedications right there as he's teaching. And, and people are saying, Jesus, would you bless our baby? Would you pray over our children? Would you help us to, to, to see our children blessed and renewed? And, and by the way, if you've got a young one and you're ready for a baby dedication, let me know. We always love to pray and, and bless you families and to uh, acknowledge our support of the church body for you to raise your child up in, in loving instruction in Christ. Um, Mother's Day, as we look ahead, is a great day for it, but any Sunday, it can be a day for baby dedication as well. Wouldn't it be fun to like dunk some people and dedicate some babies even on Easter? Who knows? Uh, anyway, yeah, sorry, I'm up here just getting excited about things. <laughs> um, so Jesus is, is, is praying over children and, and babies are being dedicated and the disciples get all freaked out. And t- they, they start shooing the people and the children away. They're like, hey, stop this. And, and, and we, want, we want all these people and all these kids to go away. And Jesus calls out the disciples and says, listen to me, guys. Here's the deal. And I want you to understand that, that the children should come to me, that the children should not be hindered, and, and the kingdom of God belongs to people like this. It, Truly, I say to you, and in, in math, or excuse me, in Mark here, that word truly, it, it's really this, this enforcing statement that is, listen, there is no doubt here that I am telling you something that you need to listen to. Listen to me, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So let's look first at a, a couple of concepts. We've got the children coming and, and the, Jesus is blessing them and and the disciples are trying to shoo him away. Jesus gets angry, says, let the kids come to me. And, and there is m- so much more to this passage than just something to paint on the nursery wall. You know, this is, this is not just what every nursery should have stenciled on the wall so that we can feel good about kids. I mean, it's okay to have kids. I mean, they may be terrible and smell funny, but Jesus likes them, so we should like them too. You know, but... No, this is, this is not the heart of this passage, though, though kids are good. So, but really understand what is going on here. So first we need to understand what is the kingdom of God. Well, first, as we look through the gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God, it, it runs kind of as, as a thread throughout Jesus' ministry. And we don't hear a lot of it in the first half, but we're going to hear more and more about the kingdom of God as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross. Because the cross is really the final inauguration of the kingdom of God. And when we see Jesus on the cross, we should not see a man suffering and dying. We should be seeing a king who is ascending to his throne. And and this is kind of mixed up and it's sideways. But when we understand the kingdom of God, it is not the greatest who are the most important. It is the greatest of those who give the most and sacrifice most fully that are the most important in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus on the cross is not a defeated man. He is an exalted king. And that's what what Mark is bringing us to. And it begins with Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is right here in front of you. Turn away from the way that you used to live life and believe in me. Now, we see the kingdom of God revealed in Christ. And in chapter 4, verse 11, it says that Jesus took in his disciples. And and after teaching the crowds in parables, he teaches his disciples 
in clear truth because they needed to understand the kingdom of God. And, and the kingdom of God grows from little bitty things into big and amazing things. Jesus says in chapter 4, verses 26 and 30, that the kingdom of God starts out small like a seed, like a mustard seed, and that it continues to grow into great things. We see that as the kingdom of God un, uh, grows and, and reveal, is revealed through Christ and, and his followers, that there, there'll be great power revealed when we read in chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. In chapter 9, verse 47, Jesus really tells us the whole goal of following after him is to enter into the kingdom of God, to understand who we are, what our role is, and how to even get in the gates to the kingdom of God is the whole goal of following after him. So when Jesus says this, that let the children come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to everyone who is like them, and if you don't become like them, you will never be able to enter into the kingdom of God. He is not so much making a statement about children as he is about us, as he is about the nature of what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. And, and we're going to see an example that comes right after this that, that a lot of times people think entering into the kingdom of God is about doing the right things. It's about checking off the list. Yes, I, 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 uh, I, I didn't blaspheme God today, didn't murder anyone today, haven't stolen anything larger than an eraser, you know, I didn't cheat on my wife or husband today. Hooray! I'm in the kingdom of God. Um, but Jesus is going to teach us that that's actually not the way into the kingdom. That the way into the kingdom is the way that a child comes to Christ. The, the way that a child interacts with, with an adult, with their parents. And, and so what does that look like? Well, like a child, a lot of us think some words like, well, you know, it's innocence. So we have to come to, to Jesus and come to the kingdom of God in innocence. Now, those of you who are parents, have you ever known an innocent child? No. And, and our children are precious and they're beautiful. And they're, from, from the moment they're born, and you can just see it in them, they are little bags of sin. I mean, they're just, we love them. But, but man, they, they will choose to do wrong at every opportunity. And so if coming to, to the kingdom of God is coming to, to God like an innocent child, then that's not very innocent, is it? That's not, there's not much to that. I mean, th that's not saying much. So it's not about being an innocent child. Maybe it's like this. It's about coming to Christ and coming to the kingdom in complete dependence and submission. What happens to a newborn if no one cares for them and they try and do their own thing? Well, they, they die. They're they are completely dependent upon us. What happens to a 16-year-old a, a if they don't have somebody caring for them? They die. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Those teenagers, you know you can cook ramen. It's cool. Now the question is, where does the ramen come from? Anyway, um, but, but children, they are completely dependent, and they should be completely submissive in the sense of my life is fully dependent upon you, parent. Now, they're not going to say that. You're not going to have, 
you know, your two-year-old and coming up and saying, I submit to you and I am completely dependent upon you. But you know that they know that. What do they do when they're hurt? They come to you. When they're hungry, they come to you. When they're angry, they come to you. When life's good, they come to you. When life is bad, they come to you. Children come to us in complete dependence and submission. Even if they don't acknowledge it, they know just innately that they are completely in need of someone to care for them. Children so often are gracious and joyful recipients, aren't they? And it's the small things. It's, it's a piece of candy. Have you ever, do you remember getting excited about quarters and candy? Do you remember getting excited about getting to go to McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken this month? Yes, you know, it's, life is so good. Gracious and joyful receiving of what is provided. And, and really, children are supposed to, especially in Jesus' day here, be coming to their parents and coming to leaders and, and understanding that they have no standing or demands that are acceptable. In other words, in Jesus' mindset and in his culture, children didn't come to their parents and say, get me a new iPhone because I said so. I will turn you in if you don't buy me an iPhone. Really? <laughs> Anybody do that? Uh, you shouldn't. That, that, that in Jesus' day, especially in this culture, when Jesus says, let, let them come to me, and everybody should come to me like a child. He is not talking about skipping and happy. He's not talking about giggling and laughter or coloring pages. He's talking about this this complete dependence and submission. He's talking about receiving things joyfully and graciously. He's talking about understanding that you don't have any standing. You don't get to make demands. You don't get to make deals. You get to come and say, whatever you want, I will receive it from you joyfully. Whatever you ask, I will obey. And it's clearly not related to innocence or innate goodness because we don't see that in kids, do we? we th th there's no reality to this mindset that children are little cherubs. No. The truth is, is they're just smaller versions of all of us, aren't they? And just like us, they're little bags of sin. And if we come to Jesus with lists of demands, thinking we're good enough, thinking we're special enough, we're not coming like children. Instead, we're coming like the selfish adults that we are. And Jesus says, just like these kids who come and they find joy in being here and they are completely dependent upon me and they are completely in submission to me and they don't have any standing or demands, they're not coming up and saying, Jesus, I'd love to be a disciple if you'll only do this for me. They are completely following after and loved on by Jesus with, a balance, with, with just, just abandon. And so when Jesus says this, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are completely dependent on me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who understand that they have no standing. They have no rights or privileges before me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those 
who come and receive from me with grace and joy. And he says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of heaven like a child shall not enter it. Now, like I said, we're going to see a perfect example of what Jesus means here in just a moment. So Jesus uses two words. He says that we must receive the kingdom of God like a child and then enter in. And it's this beautiful picture of accepting the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ and then coming into a new way of living. And that's what it means to enter into the kingdom. And this is what it takes to enter into the kingdom is to receive Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he offers with complete abandon, total dependence, and understanding of your sinfulness before him and what you actually deserve is hell and wrath and death, not love and acceptance. And you receive that, that, that love and acceptance that he gives with no conditions on your behalf. You don't get to say, well, Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me a new iPhone. Instead, you say, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you and do for you. And then you have the privilege of entering into a new way of living, a new way of doing things. And, and so we get this right after Jesus gives this teaching, we get this beautifully apropos, this, this perfect application of what Jesus has just taught in an interaction with a man who was quite well off. So in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, follow along with me if you'd like, and we will see how this lesson applies to us. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is speaking of Jesus again, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So, right away, we get this picture of what it is Jesus means in saying you have to be like a child in order to receive and enter the kingdom of God. So, verse 17, Jesus is going out, he's starting his journey to Jerusalem is really what's going on in the broad picture here. Over the last few chapters from the very beginning, Jesus has been teaching for the most part and living for the most part in northern Israel up around the Sea of Galilee, you know, crossing back and forth from Jewish lands to, to Gentile lands and teaching and preaching and healing. And people have been following after him. And now, after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ... Jesus has begun the long journey down to Jerusalem. And we're going to find him arriving <laughs> here in, in, in just a few verses, actually. Because Mark's goal is to help us understand 
Not that Jesus was a great teacher, but that Jesus ultimately came to give his life as our King and Savior. But as Jesus is beginning this journey down to Jerusalem, here in verse 17, this man comes up to him, kneels down before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. That's the first thing you see here. Is this guy running up to Jesus and he, is he like, Jesus, you're so great. I want to do what you say. Actually, the way this reads here, oops, sorry, clicked the wrong slide. Good teacher. Um, it, it almost seems like this guy is trying to flatter Jesus. Like, oh, Jesus, you're such a good guy. I want you to tell me that I'm a good guy too. You, I mean, you, you guys have been in those relationships, haven't you? Where you, you, you show up somewhere and you tell somebody how good they look because you're wearing a new outfit. Because what you're fishing for is, oh, you look good too. Is that a new outfit? Yeah, let me tell you where I got it. I, it's beautiful, isn't it? And I look so good. But, right, so, so it, it's that same kind of mindset that this man is coming to Jesus and saying, good teacher, who will call me good too, right? Good teacher, oh, how do I have eternal life? Now, there is a second option here. Maybe he was really sincere but didn't understand what he was saying. I, I think it's probably the first. Because of the context of what Jesus is trying to teach, this man is coming to Jesus on his terms. Not Jesus' terms, not Jesus' conditions, but this man is trying to come to Jesus within his own strength, on his own terms, completely contrary to what Jesus has just taught about entering into the kingdom of God. So it, it seems that this, is, this man is, is actually, he's trying to flatter Jesus. But Jesus calls him out pretty quickly. And he says this, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is calling this man out on a couple of things. First of all, he, if this man is really fishing for a good, boy from Jesus, a good job from Jesus. Jesus is already telling him he's not going to get it. Because who alone is good? God. If God is the only one who is genuinely good, and you have done really great things, are you good? No. And so already in this statement, Jesus is telling this man the answer to his question Listen, you call me good. Why do you call me good? Because no one is good except for God alone. You think you can earn eternal life? You think you can earn the kingdom of heaven by being a really good person? There's nobody good but God. Now this is interesting as well. This is Jesus kind of giving a sly answer saying, I'm God. The man says, good teacher. And Jesus says, nobody's good but God. If I'm genuinely good, then I must be God, which is who he is, the incarnate son of God come to give himself for all of mankind. So this, this man, he comes and he says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now we're going to see later on that Jesus equates eternal life and the kingdom of God together. When we kind of buckle these two things together in this whole passage. In verse 17, the man asks, what must I do to uh, inherit eternal life? 
And then the disciples in verse 23, which we haven't technically gotten to yet, but we will get to. They say how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus equates the kingdom of God and eternal life in his teaching. So those are kind of interchangeable concepts. So Jesus says to the man, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. No one is good but God alone. And then he says this to the man. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the guy says to him, Jesus, I'm in. Is it uh, easy? I, since I was a little kid, since, since I had my bar mitzvah, I have been doing all of that. Thank you, Jesus. This is so great. It's good to know that I'm in. And, and, and that's how this man seems to feel. After Jesus says, listen, you know the law, right? You know what God has already established for us. That's why I read the, the Ten Commandments to start the service. You see, God has this desire for us to be in relationship with him. And to be in relationship with a good God, a perfect and holy God, would require us to be perfect and holy and completely good. But each and every one of us, we've chosen to reject God's goodness and God's kingship over us in some form or another. Our kids have done it. We did it. Some of us still continue to do it. We live in rebellion against the kingship of God. And while it looks on the outside like we follow these rules, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, it's not just the fact that you didn't murder somebody today. It's the fact that you didn't hate anyone either. It's not the fact that you didn't commit adultery today that, that keeps you in the good. Jesus says you're not in the good because you committed adultery in your heart when you looked at someone with lust. There's none good but God. And these commandments actually remind us that to be in relationship with a perfect God, we must ourselves either be perfect or someone has to be perfect in our place. And that is what Jesus did for us. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God. And we are now, because of his sacrifice, sacrifice clothed in his righteousness, is what scripture tells us. He took away our sin and gave us a robe of holiness to wear so that we could enter into God's presence. And, and he was buried and then rose again on the third day and that resurrection proves he really is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. And that everyone who believes on him will be saved, will be clothed in the righteousness of God, will be holy because of his sacrifice and have eternal life and the ability to enter into the kingdom. But here's what Jesus says to this man who thinks he's in the good, who thinks he's done everything right. Jesus looks at him. He loved him. It's important to see that. Jesus didn't condemn him. Jesus didn't go, you idiot. What's your problem? Jesus didn't call him names. Instead, he loves him and he speaks the truth to him. He says to them, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This is, this is it. Jesus says to him, 
okay, I'm not going to argue with you about following the rules. You say you've done it. Okay, I, I know it's not true. But as an act of actual obedience and giving of yourself and surrender to me as king, I want you to do this one thing for me. I want you to go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow after me. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, it tells us um, a, a little bit later that, that he had great possessions. And the fact that he had great possessions, the fact that he thought he was you know, measuring up to the goodness of God, leads us to believe that this guy was really full of himself, and especially because he was wealthy. Now, why would that be such a big deal? Because it's interesting to note that, uh, same as uh, on certain channels on television today, and... Uh, in Jesus' day, there is this equation that if you are wealthy, you are clearly blessed by God. And if you are poor, you are cursed by God. And some of us might think that, well, if God loves me, he will, he'll give me lots of good things. There's actually no promise of that in Scripture. The good things come in the next life. The really good things. But that mindset that if you're wealthy you're clearly blessed if you're poor you're clearly cursed existed in jesus day and jesus is really confronting this man this man who thinks because he's done everything right and has lots of money he must be blessed and jesus is trying to tell him your money means nothing your accomplishments mean nothing you will still die and experience eternal death if you don't do this one thing. And for this man, the one thing he was supposed to do was sell his possessions, give away the money, not put it in the bank for later, give away the money to people who he thought were cursed and didn't deserve it, and then spend his life following Jesus. Now, some people have taken what Jesus says to this rich man, and they've said, so everyone must sell their things, share everything in common. Everyone should be completely equal. Nobody should be richer. Nobody should be poorer. There should just be this kind of vanilla existence in the church. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Because what Jesus is saying is to this man. And he's saying to this man, whose God is his wealth, whose righteousness is his blessedness, from his perspective, he's saying to this man, you, in order to be saved, have to sacrifice your false god. In order for you to be saved, you have to understand your complete lack of righteousness. Now, for some of us, this could be an application for us because we might view our success or our wealth as evidence that God loves us and we're blessed, and yet we've never sacrificed or given ourselves completely over to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We think we're good because we come to church and we do the right things. And, and look, I must be okay. I've got a nicer car than that person over there who says they're a Christian. Maybe that is for you, but there, for others of us, there are other false gods that should be dying. There, there are other things that we should be sacrificing. Some of us, it's our education. Well, you don't understand. I mean, I have a PhD. So what? Do you know that there will be just as many idiots 
in hell as PhDs, right? And, and some might say twice as many lawyers. No. Uh, look, we, we, we make false gods out of our accomplishments. We make false gods out of the things we think are our blessings. And instead of coming to Jesus in abject submission with nothing to offer and following after him, we come and say, well, here, Jesus, here's my proposal. You should really want me as your disciple because I'm really good at this and I'm really great at this and people like me. And Jesus says, none of that matters. None of it matters. If you're not coming to me empty-handed and destitute, you're not actually coming to me. If you're not coming to me with an understanding that all of your good works mean nothing, you're not actually coming to me. And so many of us are like this man. We think that we've got everything together. And when Jesus actually says to us, you've got nothing and you can offer me nothing, and all I want is you, so get rid of all of that other baggage and come to me, stripped down, broken, and destitute like you really are, we end up disheartened. We walk away because, you know, we got some nice stuff and it's hard to follow Jesus. And as, as Americans, we, it's especially hard sometimes, as wealthy as so many of us. In fact, we could say compared to the rest of the world, all of us are. So to become a Christian, to have eternal life, to enter into the kingdom of God, it's not just about doing right things. It's not just about believing the right truths. It is about a lifestyle in which you become fully dependent on Christ for your identity you don't say, I'm a rich man or a rich woman or I'm a learned person. Instead, you understand that your identity is in Christ alone. And if you still have some of those other things, praise God. But he might ask you to sacrifice all of it to follow after him. You fully depend on Christ for your provision. This man got told to sell some of the nicer things and then give the money away, right? No. No. Jesus says to him, sell the things you don't really use much. No. Go sell all that you have and give a tithe to the poor. No, no, wait. Give half to the poor. I mean, that's, that's a lot. No, go sell all you have and give it all away. And then come walk with me. This complete dependence upon Christ for provision. Now, once again, this is not a prescription for the whole church. So everybody, go sell everything, and we'll come back here next Sunday and see what happens. <laughs> no, but, but for that man, that was the prescription. For you, it might be to go sell some things, to go sell many things. For you, it might be to stop leaning upon your success in business for your provision. It might be stop leaning upon your education, stop leaning upon your relationships, your, your suave attitude, right? There is something that, about us oftentimes that we think is so important that it's what makes us us, and that should be the first thing that dies when we come to follow Jesus Christ and become fully dependent on Christ for our purpose. A lot of us, some of us, 
maybe many of us, we're all encouraged to have like what, you know, five-year plans, 10-year plans, and, and I'm not against planning, right? It shouldn't, your life should not be the toss of a dart uh, onto sticky notes on a wall to see what you're doing today. But much like James teaches, that we don't decide a year ahead of time everything that we're going to do and then we're resolute and say this is what will happen. But in everything we say, as the Lord wills it, we will move forward in this direction. As God allows, we'll pursue this. And if God takes us somewhere different, we'll follow his purpose and his plan. Because we are fully dependent on Jesus as citizens of the kingdom of God. So here's what goes on then. Jesus has just said some hard things, honestly. He's, he's laid down some difficult truth. First, he said, if you want to come and be part of life with me, eternal life, and live in the kingdom, you've got to be like a child, completely dependent, understanding your need for someone to save you. And then he tells the rich man, abandon everything you think is important about you. And not just leave it by the side for a little while, but get rid of it completely and come to me destitute and weak and powerless and then you'll be part of the kingdom. Then you'll have eternal life. Then you'll walk with me. Jesus is saying hard things. And his disciples struggle with it. Verses 23 through 31. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So as we begin to unfold this, what we see is Jesus equates the kingdom of God with eternal life, and the disciples are completely freaked out. Jesus, you have just taught some really hard stuff. Who is it that can actually be saved? Because you're saying that, that it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. And in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some anybody ever heard the, the, the softening of this uh, illustration and say, well, there used, there, there used to be this this gate that was beside the main gate in Jerusalem. It was a little, little tiny gate, and for a camel to go through it, it had to get on its knees and crawl, and, but it, you could get the camel through the eye of the needle gate if, if you, know, you just worked hard enough at it. Now, does that not just completely violate exactly what Jesus is teaching? If you work hard enough, you can get into the kingdom of God on your own. No. What Jesus is literally talking about is an actual camel and an actual needle, right? Little eye of the needle. You know, you can barely see through. That's what Jesus is talking about. 
And he's saying earning your salvation would be like trying to pass a camel through the eye of a needle. Who can do it? And the disciples clearly understand. They don't go, well, the really good camel trainer can do it. They go, this is impossible. Who can be saved in Jesus? If you're telling us that it's easier to get a big animal like that through a tiny hole like that than it is for someone to be saved, how can anybody be saved? How can it ever happen? If, if I can't earn my salvation, how can I be saved? If, if I can't go to church enough, if I can't do enough Bible studies, if I don't, you know, I'm, and I'll pray like 12 hours a day, can't I earn my salvation then, Jesus? I'll be a really good person. Everybody I'll know will say, oh, he's such a good person, or she's such a good lady. And, uh, no, none of it gets you into the kingdom. None of it brings you to eternal life. Who can be saved? How is it going to happen? Jesus says this simple phrase. Looks at them and says, with man it's not possible. In other words, none of you can work hard enough, do enough good works, follow enough rules to ever enter into the kingdom of God. With man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, this has been taken out of context and used by some pastors, preachers, teachers, Bible studies, and devotionals to mean lots of things it was never meant to mean. You know, that, that everything's possible with God, so if you just paint the right verses on your face, you'll win the Super Bowl, right? And for some of us, you can look at us and know we're never even going to the Super Bowl. You know, it, it, you'll get the right job if you just have the right devotional this morning because everything's possible with God. Now, what's Jesus talking about here specifically? Salvation. Entering the kingdom of God. Eternal life. Because this is the most important thing there is. That's it. It's worth selling all that you have and giving it to the poor in order to be able to walk with Christ and enter into the kingdom of God and have eternal life. And Jesus says, it's impossible for you to do any of it on your own. But it's not impossible with God. God's going to make it possible. Now, we know the end of the story, don't we? How does God make it possible for people like you and me to do the impossible and be saved? He sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross as the sacrifice for your sin and mine and purchased for us redemption and that everyone who believes on him will be saved and have eternal life. This is what Jesus means when he says it's possible. He's not talking about our careers. He's not talking about our politics. He's not talking about anything except our eternal life, which is the only thing in Jesus' sight. So Jesus says to them, it's possible. It's possible. Now what's funny is Peter, Peter responds with this. And, and everybody who has been a Christian for a long time knows that Peter gets made fun of because he's brash, isn't he? He just speaks what's on his mind. He's the guy 
that would, you know, when you asked, do you like my new outfit, he would say, no, you look terrible. What were you thinking when you bought that? Peter begins to speak and he says this, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus, what, what do you mean? I mean, it's impossible, but, but look, look what we've done, Jesus. We've sacrificed everything to follow you. It's interesting that Peter starts whining. Is, instead of really getting the lesson that Jesus is teaching, Peter starts whining about the fact, well, but, but we've tr we're trying real hard, Jesus. Now, Jesus answers Peter with love and grace, and he says this, <clears throat> that whoever has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel will receive in this lifetime a hundredfold houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions <laughs> and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus does say, look, when you give up everything and you follow after me, there is a reward. There is a, a recompense I know that you've given up a lot to, 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 to follow after me and I will provide for you in the now and I will bless you in the now to come. And, and we need to look at this list, some things. First of all, Jesus says, anybody who gives up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, there's a lot of stuff in that list. There's one relationship, though, that's not in that list. And it's one that we talked about last week. Nowhere does he say, or wife, or husband, there is no justification for forsaking marriage in Scripture, period. Even in this list, what's interesting is, what do we know about Peter? Well, Peter was probably married. In fact, not probably. He, scripture gives us clear indication he was married. How do we know? Well, we know he had a mother-in-law. And I got to tell you, it's a really bad deal to get a mother-in-law and no wife. Right? And, and I mean, even good mothers-in-law, right? We, 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 but that would just be a really bad deal if all he got out of that was a mother-in-law. So we, we know he was married. And in fact, Jesus spent a lot of time at Peter's house in Capernaum. In fact, that was probably the center of his ministry in that city. And Jesus says, I know you've left a lot. And you will receive in this life a hundredfold. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And some of us go, yeah, I like that list, especially the houses and lands. Because, I mean, I gave up a little bit, but that means I'm going to get a hundredfold, like a hundred big, shiny houses and, and lots of land. But then you read the rest of the list and it says, and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. Oh my goodness. I gave up one kid, and now I get a hundred more. What a blessing, especially for you ladies, right? <laughs> We're Mormons all of a sudden. We look back and remember something that Jesus said, though. Jesus' mother and his brothers and his sister, they were standing outside of the door of the house in Capernaum in chapter 3. And Jesus is in there teaching and preaching, and his mother and brothers and, and, and family, they want Jesus to come out and talk with them. And uh, so they're standing outside. Jesus, come out and talk with us. And somebody comes to him and says, Jesus, your, your mom's outside. Can you imagine how embarrassing that is? He's at least in his early 30s. 
and somebody comes and says, Jesus, your mom, she really wants to talk to you. And Jesus isn't embarrassed, and actually he responds with this. Listen, that's not my mother. Those aren't my brothers. That's not my sister. He's not actually saying they're not related to him, but he's saying in, in his perception, in his worldview, they are not the most important ones. He is willing to let them go because his real brother and sister and mother are the persons who do the will of God. So when we see Jesus tell us that when we give up, we will get back a hundredfold, he's not talking about lots of houses and land. What he's telling us is that those who do the will of God, when they sacrifice and give, will find that they have brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and homes all over the world because we're part of the family of God. We're part of the kingdom together. So this is not a normal practice for us, but as Christians, it should be such that my house is your house and your house is my house. And so if your TV is bigger, we're there for the Super Bowl. But we meet one another's needs, physically and emotionally. And Jesus says when we sacrifice and give, that we will receive, but not in the way that sometimes we think. Rather, we will receive through one another and this new family that we've been brought into. Two things he does promise, in addition to the hundredfold replacement of sacrifice, persecutions. Yes! Jesus, I was hoping you'd add that to the list. You see, it's not easy to live the Christian life. It's not easy to walk with Christ. And so we will be persecuted. And then he talks about in the age to come, eternal life. We will receive those things. And then he, he makes this one last statement. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is just a, a great summary of this whole section if you're seeking to be first, if you're seeking to be worthy of Jesus' respect and honor, if you're seeking to earn your own salvation and be the first among many, you will be the absolute last. And in fact, you will not make it into eternal life or the kingdom of God. But when you sacrifice all that you are, when you come to Christ destitute and broken and worthless and understand your need for him, you will be exalted and blessed. So, of course, important to remember the first act of walking with Christ is trusting Him as your Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that this morning, I want to encourage you to talk to someone. Come talk to me after the service to, to begin that process. If you are genuinely, earnestly wanting to know what eternal life is and where it comes from and how to really grab a hold of it, it begins with understanding the full story of Jesus and what he's done for you. And we've glossed over it, we've, we've highlighted some stuff, but maybe you need to ask some questions and spend some more time. And when we really interact with Jesus in this passage, we come to an understanding that when we want to come into the kingdom, when we want to experience eternal life, we've got to do a number of things. And it's not doing good, instead it's about doing nothing and realizing our need for Jesus. Come to Jesus in childlike dependence and trust. Abandon your false gods and identities. If you call yourself 
a, you know, a business person, you call yourself a mom, and then you call yourself whatever, and that's where you find your identity, let it die and find your identity in Christ. If you are trusting in the money you make, the job you have, the relationship that you've been pursuing to save your life, uh, get rid of those false gods and pursue Jesus. Become fully dependent on Jesus. And sometimes we say things and don't quite know how to explain them. And, And really what I mean by that is stop trying so hard to make your life right and realize you can't do it and you need to rely on Him to heal you, restore you, give you clarity and answers. And finally, something that we can work on even more here is to understand that the church, we're each other's new family, new home, new community. We're each other's new lands and and mothers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters, all with one father, God himself. So, if you need people, we're your people. If you need family, we're your family. But we can't chase each other down. And come share your needs, share your hurts and brokennesses, and let us lift you. God is so good to us, His word is so clear. Jesus doesn't leave us wondering how can I be saved? How do I get into the kingdom? gives us a clear answer just like he did that man that day give up your false gods give up your self-sufficiency give up your dependence upon your own good works recognize your poverty Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. Pray that you would continue as, as, as things unfold to keep teaching your word in our hearts. What's beautiful about you and your word is that the sermon doesn't end when I say amen, but you will continue to preach to us if we will listen. You will continue to speak to us. You will continue to bring to mind the false gods we need to abandon. You will continue to bring to mind pride and and the puffed up nature that that keeps us from genuinely chasing after you. You will continue to bring to mind by your scripture and by your spirit our prides and prejudices that keep us from being the family of God we're supposed to be. So today I pray that even as we've shared your word in this time, that your word will continue to dig deep into us and make us more like Convict us, empower us, and bring us into your kingdom. In your name we pray. Storm 
Don't let the day pass without either asking the person beside you or coming and talking to me. God bless you.